five, four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. You're listening to Working Forward. Presented by Symmetra. In partnership with NASA Reimagine. In this limited podcast series, hosted by Harry Monty, Laura Dynan Haber, Paul Tyler, and Todd Zen, we explore the future of work from a variety of viewpoints and discuss the challenges and opportunities ahead. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Working Forward podcast. We are so pleased that you have joined us as we continue our conversation about the future of work. Uh, Very excited to get into our topic today. We're going to be talking about HR tech. This is a robust field, obviously very much on our theme here. It's powering the future of work. We've got three fantastic guests, two CEOs and co-founders, and we have a general expert coming to us from the venture capital, capital world. So really excited to bring them in. But before we do, uh, as always, I want to introduce my co-host, first starting with Harry Monty, Head of Benefits at Symmetra. Hi, Harry. Welcome to the show. Hi, Todd. Thanks. Looking forward to it. As you said, uh, some great guests. Wonderful. Uh, and we also have our friends from NASA Reimagined, although like last time, we're actually down one of them. Unfortunately, Paul Tyler couldn't join us, but very pleased to have Laura Dynan Haber back on the show. Laura, hi. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be back, and I look forward to today's conversation. Wonderful. So now let's bring on our guests. So I want to start by welcoming Allison Baum-Gates. She is a general partner at Semperverens Venture Capital. Allison, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Next, we've got Jessica Kim. She is co-founder and CEO of Ionacare, which is a platform for family caregivers. Jessica, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, excited for this conversation. Wonderful. Us as well. And next, we've got Joanna Strober. Uh, she is co-founder and CEO of MIDI, which is a virtual care platform focused on female midlife health. Joanna, hi, welcome. Good morning. All right. We've got everybody here. Uh, Harry, I'm sure you are chomping at the bit to ask a question. So let me hand it off to you. Thanks, Todd. And, uh, you know, Allison, I'm going to start with you because you recently published an article titled What is Going On in HR Tech and the Future of Work? And it was really interesting. Could you just recap some of the insights from that article for our audience? Because I think they're going to be a great underpinning for a lot of our conversation today. Absolutely. What we've found in a lot of our conversations around HR Tech and the Future of Work is that it's a very confusing time. The pandemic was clearly a platform shift, a real disruption that led to an explosion in innovation, the elevation of the HR function, the renewed emphasis on people as whole beings and not just, you know, butts and seats necessarily. And that was a really exciting time. Venture capitalists were pouring a ton of capital into new technology that was creating solutions for this space. And that was very exciting. But over the past 18 months, the dust has began to begun to settle where employers are saying, okay, we tried a bunch of stuff. Now we need to figure out what's actually working. 
and what's right for us. And individuals are saying, I changed my whole life around potentially during the pandemic. And now I'm trying to refocus and recenter on what my goals are. And at the same time, we're seeing with the broader economy, a huge slowdown and uh, headlines around job cuts, but at the same rising interest rates, but at the same time, employment numbers at, at the top level are still quite good. We're still at very historically low unemployment. So it's very confusing. And the um, result has been a general pullback and consolidation in um, not necessarily reduction in budgets, but instead, you know, I think employers saying, what do I really need? What are my employees asking for? Where can I um, take five solutions and provide one? And for the ones that I am paying for, how can I make sure that I'm getting the most out of it? Um, and so that's kind of where we are and happy to dive into where we see opportunities or kind of what are the results of that. But um, I would say we're definitely in a period of practicality and less one of excitement um, around trying anything new. So I, I do have a follow-up question and I you know, ask you to kind of connect some dots for me, right? Because in the article, you talk about the fact that there was a tremendous amount of capital that was being infused into the startups and HR organizations were making massive investments, uh, in particular in talent acquisition, but that the startups were struggling to get traction with large-scale employers. So, like, can you diagnose that for us? Like, what what was happening there with the with the startups struggling to get get the traction? There was a lot of confusing signal around the fact that early adopters were interested in trying anything, and particularly when it comes to talent acquisition. A lot of uh, new startups use success-driven models where they might not necessarily be charging a fee up front, but it's more if you do hire someone from their platform or if you want to try something out, you only pay if it works. Um, and in particular, technology companies who have been growing very quickly were very early adopters for a lot of this technology because they'll try anything. And when you're moving you know, into hyper growth, Anybody that can solve any problem that you have, especially if there's no upfront cost, you might as well try it out. And so a lot of companies that had gotten initial traction in the technology sector were hit particularly hard by the pullback where the hyper growth days of technology companies had really slowed. And that has become really confusing for investors and I think for founders as well, where they had that initial traction with small and medium-sized businesses, particularly in the technology sector, they pulled back and it wasn't necessarily on their radar as a young startup to start working with very large enterprises because you have a lot of tech, you know, technology security requirements, longer sales cycles, bigger contracts, but you know, you can get pulled in a lot of different directions, get asked for a lot of customizations. And so they weren't doing that yet, um, sometimes deliberately, sometimes not deliberately. Um, but that has been really challenging for the economics of a lot of these early businesses. So, Allison, if I could jump in, I, I'm really interested in something in your article where you, you talk about, this is very relevant to us at, at Symmetra and, and insurance carriers. Uh, you talk a little bit about how employers are thinking about 
paying for some of these things. So some of these new innovative type benefits and, you know, they're rethinking, is this a cost that the insurance carrier should bear or perhaps even our own employees? And, you know, when I think about the exciting things that Ionicare and MIDI are doing, and, you know, we'll talk about that today. How, how to pay for them, though, is an important question. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could share some of your insights on that. Over the last few years of hypergrowth, talent was very hard to find and retain. And so employers, at least in our ecosystem, were almost willing to pay for anything because they could realize an ROI in the form of keeping somebody just a little bit longer. And I think there are two things that have happened. One is a lot of employers weren't actually able to realize that ROI because turnover naturally has been so high by choice. Um, you know, it is my belief that we are now in an era where you shouldn't expect people to stay with you for the course of their entire career. That's just not the reality. People don't want that. Um, they naturally shift jobs every 18 months and that cycle is only going to be getting um, shorter. And that's not as a result of anything employers have done. It's just a result of a more liquid job market and a general cultural shift in terms of what we expect from our employers. So I think um, there's there's that piece. Um, and then two, uh, there's also the fact that you can't buy everything for everyone and there's general point solution fatigue. And so if you have too many solutions and you can't prove what is the actual ROI, the question becomes who is realizing that ROI? And um, is there a way for me to provide that benefit to my employees, which is something I really care about but without necessarily, you know, spending extra out of pocket. So um, at a high level, I think that's what we've been seeing. And when it comes to both women's health and caregiving, it's very clear that there's an ROI uh, there and that those are very, very, uh, you know, needed solutions. And why are employees leaving their employers? There's the reasons you can control and there's the reasons you can't control. And what I mentioned around just general cultural shifts, you can't control that. But if somebody's leaving to take care of a loved one or leaving because their health is so difficult that they can't show up for work in the way they need to, well, those are very solvable problems. And so we're finding employers are really focused on um, those two areas in particular. That's great. And, you know, the the whole concept of it. I mean, there's so so many questions and so many different ways we could dig into it. But I want to give Jessica and Joanna a chance to tell the audience a bit about their companies. You know, a quick overview would be wonderful. Some detail on how your platforms help power the future of group benefits within this space. Um, the work that you do is fascinating. It's important. So Jessica, let's begin with you. If, if you could provide a quick overview, that'd be great. Yeah, great. Um, so Ionicare, we are the front door to navigating all the care in the home for family caregivers. So across all ages, conditions, care situations. And we do that by putting all the layers of support in one clear place. So everything from mobilizing your friends and family to help with meals, rides, respite care, child care, pet care, house errands, all those everyday tasks to a full self-search database of over 650,000 local resources. So think all of the social determinants of health resources like transportation, financial aid, rehab centers. And then you cannot keep the human out of this uh, very human experience. And so we do match 
every single employee up with unlimited access to a human navigator. So this is the white glove, concierge, high touch, right-hand person throughout the entire journey who makes the calls for you. They help you vet the options um, and they guide you throughout the entire experience. And so when I think about the future of benefits and the future of, you know, group benefits and work, um, you know, and Allison speaks a lot about this. There's like a consolidation that's going to happen. You know, when we looked out into the marketplace, we realized that caregiving is defined in such a narrow way. So you often see just a sliver of backup childcare, right? That if you really think about it, it's really for preschool age and younger, right? So you're not even caring for all of the childcare needs um, or elder care, end of life planning or something like that. And, um, you know, and so it really made us uh, not create just another point solution, but instead think of Ionicare as the full infrastructure support to navigate all that care in the home in one place to make it most inclusive, you know, the quickest speed to service. Um, and then our approach is very continuous. So we're not case-based. You don't open a case and close a case. Once you engage with us, we proactively guide you to things that you may not even know to ask for. Um, and ultimately it's embedded in our name. It's uh, IANA of Ionicare stands for I am not alone. And that's what we do for employees and employers. I love that. And Joanna. I, first of all, I wish I had had that when I had young children. <laughs> I know you take care of the broad range of things, but I think it would have been incredibly helpful to me. Um, so Midi Health is a midlife care platform for women. And we start taking women around the age of 35 and take care of their health. And what does that mean? It means everything from sleep issues, anxiety, um, hot flashes, to really more chronic conditions. Um, we're, we are absolutely helping women take care of obesity. We're helping them take care of diabetes. With other, basically, we can help them on this remote platform take care of really all their health issues um, from their desk with expert care. And the way we created the company is we went out to the experts in all phases of women's life and we have created protocols. So we have really high expertise in pretty much all, like 36 different conditions that women experience. And a lot of those conditions are things that actually do make them quit their jobs. So there's a lot of research that shows that 25% of women in this age category think about leaving their jobs because of health issues. And these are absolutely issues that we're able to manage effectively. So it's, it's really the intersection of hormones and, uh, and just aging. And, and there's a lot that we can do to make people feel better and, and be able to be extremely successful in their jobs. So that's really what we're focused on. Well, I think that's great. And, and I appreciate both of you giving us a chance to understand each of your companies a bit more. And I know that we're going to dive deeper as we go into the conversation. But I want to flip the question back over to Allison. And, you know, let's talk about how are employers thinking differently about benefits and supporting employees with resources and services that fall outside of traditional benefit offerings? So I think some of us, you know, 15 years ago would have a sense of these are the traditional benefit offerings. You talked a little bit about, you know, the expectations of employees, how things have changed, retention. Have you seen benefits evolve, especially throughout the last few years, but even just as a broader swath? How has that evolution taken place? And what are some examples of that non-traditional benefit that you see? So much has changed. It feels uh, almost difficult to summarize in one sentence. I think the, first of all, we've seen an emphasis on end-to-end -end solutions 
where instead of providing a very specific type of benefit, looking at women's midlife health, for example, um, as something that is essential, um, that we need to provide benefits to women that uh, support their entire life cycle and not just one moment in time. And that's helpful, obviously, from keeping them in the, from the perspective of keeping them in the workforce. Women were, you know, uh, disproportionately uh, impacted by the pandemic in terms of leaving the workforce. Um, but it also sends a message that we care about you and actually want you to be productive in this role. And so looking at that kind of entire life cycle. And then I think we've also seen the emergence of new categories, mental health, obviously, as one. Um, you know, I think we heard rumblings of that and saw early adopters, particularly in the technology sector, like I spoke about before, adopting mental health uh, benefits for their employees. And then the pandemic really thrust that into a more of a core benefit. Um, and we really do believe that um, expanding the definition of women's health beyond just fertility is uh, another category expansion that we're experiencing right now. And caregiving emerging as a new standard for um, what employers should be providing. And certainly, I come to that position from a bottoms up perspective of, you know, the type of innovation we're seeing, new companies gaining traction in these spaces, what we hear from our ecosystem of people leaders. We run a community of about 150 senior HR leaders at publicly traded companies. And then also what we hear from our partners who are insurance carriers um, who are saying, hey, we're starting to pay attention to this category because we're hearing it from our employer customers. Um, and then similarly from the broker community. And so you start to triangulate all those things and it starts to really become inevitable that there's going to be a new category of a benefit emerging. So we're seeing, um, you know, both of these areas as, as very important. In, in Allison, how far we've come, right? It's, um, I've been doing this a long time in the benefits space. And I think back to when pet insurance was considered innovation. And right. don't get me wrong, I love pet insurance. I love my dog. I, I have pet insurance. But um, you know, one of the things we've been talking about on this podcast is more of a consumer focus and meeting people where they are with real life problems that help them both with their overall wellness as well as financial security. And as I listen to what you're describing, it's just a huge shift from the way that the industry has thought about benefits in the past. And I, I love it. It, it. it fits right in with what we've been talking about, about the future of work. And what I'll say is what I think is so exciting about it is it is a result of this shifting relationship between employers and employees. I mean, we saw it in the consumer market where you had these big aggregators, right? You had, you know, the broadcast networks and you had um, the record studios, and they really chose who was going to be successful because they owned the distribution channel to the end consumer. But with the rise of the internet and new applications, all of a sudden people could choose to read whatever they wanted and watch whatever they wanted. And so that um, created a direct line between individuals and the creators. And I think we're seeing the same shift happen with employers and employees now where people have the ability to vote with their feet because you can make money on the internet in so many different ways. And before it used to be, if you wanted health insurance or if you wanted to a steady income, you had to have one job at one big company. And that's just not the reality anymore. And 
sure, there are cycles in terms of, you know, tight labor market or um, a looser labor market where, you know, there is a little bit of a power shift. And we happen to have just gone through a period of time where individuals had so many choices. It was incredibly competitive because people left the workforce and all of that. But I still think ultimately we're on this very, you know, big shift um, heading in a secular shift, heading in one direction where employees have way more options. And if you're not giving them what they need, they'll just leave and do something else because they can't. Yeah. And then, you know, to add on to that, because Allison, you talk a lot about like the pandemic has created, you know, this, you know, frenzy of a response and now it's settling down. But I think there's just on a human level things that we cannot unsee anymore. Right. So, um, Joanna, you and I probably always say like these are not new problems that like uh, like became a problem because of the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. Now I have people to care for. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm going through, you know, midlife, you know, health issues as a woman. Um, but it, I think what gets me excited is finally there's this pivotal global point of the pandemic that says, oh my gosh, look at how much has been unseen. And that combined with employees saying, I am no longer going to be okay with you not seeing this part of my life and my priorities have shifted. So on top of Allison's, you know, point of like, I can make money elsewhere. I'm like, you know, I, I, you need to see all of me, right? You see all of me <laughs> already through Zoom. Um, <laughs> and so where's that shifting of priority where HR has to take care of their people, but the demands of what people are looking for are really different. And so I think it's a good thing on a human level. And, you know, I love the progress that we see in, on the HR side. So, yeah, that's something we've talked about in a lot of episodes, the, the role of the pandemic as the re- revealer. Right. You know, it didn't cause these things, but it made them more clear. And, you know, building on all this, you know, Joanna, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about maybe and, and what you do. I think it's it's so inspiring because. You do think about the progression here, right? So there was a time when there was really nothing, uh, 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 women's health programs, and then maternity became a focus for good reason. And then, you know, that expanded to infertility, and there was some growth in programs and support there. And and that's all wonderful and important stuff. But there was clearly a, a, a massive gap in thinking about women's health from a lifetime perspective and, you know, the issues of of, of midlife. And, you know, we heard from employers and brokers in earlier episodes, they are very focused, just in line with this conversation about making sure benefits are reaching their entire populations and making a difference. So, you know, I, I, I guess I'm struggling for my question in here, because I, maybe it's more of a comment, but maybe you could just expand on it, you know, what what you do is important, and, you know, how are employers reacting to it? And, you know, what are some of the ways in which your, your programs are really helping employers, um, you know, help their employees throughout their entire lifetimes? Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the things that's happened in the last few years, and I don't know how pandemic-related this is, is women have realized that the healthcare system has kind of ignored them for a long time. And, uh, you know, we look at this care gap, and we think it's pretty significant. There was money to be made in birth. And so a lot of the resources went to where the medical system made money, which is through in babies. That's where they mostly get compensated. Um only 10% of all OBGYNs are trained in menopause care, and 50% of counties in the United States don't even have an OBGYN. So when you look at those numbers, you realize that there's this massive gap of care for this age population. And then you might think, well, why do employers care about that? Well, this is a very effective part of their workforce. This is the women who are have been loyal, have been trained, are leading the teams that 
they need. It's really a core part of their career in their 40s and early 50s. And it's during that time of life when these health things start to happen to them that really can derail them. And so what the employers that we're talking to realize pretty clearly that if we if they can intervene quickly when someone has stopped sleeping or is starting to having anxiety attacks or um, you know having any other number of symptoms you may not know that joint pain can be terrible and that's related to women's health so we can treat these things and then we can enable people to be very successful at work it's it's a really straightforward proposition the other thing that's actually super interesting is the depression and anxiety issue which is that employers are overwhelmed by the costs of mental health right now. And a lot of mental health for women is actually misdiagnosed. So when women stopped taking estrogen in 2000, the percentage of them on antidepressants went up seven times. And so they're being over-treated with therapy and antidepressants instead of the right treatments. So we've actually seen an increase, 70 cent, we just have this big report that came back that 77% of the women who are using MIDI after two visits have had significant increase in their mental health. So that's not therapy. It's just getting them on the right medications and having them taken care of the right way. So there's real, there's real financial benefits as well as um, you know, productivity benefits by just getting people the right care. And uh, also, I would argue pretty strongly that telehealth is the right way to get this care. A lot of people are actually much more comfortable with these discussions on telehealth rather than in person. And so, um, you know, creating a platform of empathetic uh, caregivers in uh, caregiving mean in our, in our, you know, you know so nurse practitioners and doctors who really understand women's health, it has a lot of, um, you know, benefits. It's not just about the physical health, but it ends up being about the mental health. It ends up definitely making women more productive at work because they're they're functioning their best, and that's really what employers are looking for. And so at both a micro and a macro level, I think when you have a healthcare provider listening to you and actually, you know, understand your symptoms and not telling you that oh you're depressed or there's something wrong with you, um, you know, or those symptoms aren't real, that leads women to feel better and be more empowered. And at the same time, when employers provide a benefit like MIDI or like Ionicare, it also makes their employees feel listened to, which yes. even just, even if they don't use it, which they probably will, um, the fact that the employer can establish that relationship and make it clear that they care about their employees in that way, I think we see a lot of um, intangible benefit there as well. Yeah. And one, one of the things that I love about this podcast is what I learn along the way. Right. And so, Joanna, I want to come back to something that you, Joanna, um, what you said. We talk about healthcare deserts um, all the time. Right. The, the access to care is so difficult across the country. Did I hear you correctly that 50 percent of the counties in the country don't have an OBGYN? Yeah. That, that is stunning. Yeah, it's interesting. Wow. And it's actually just getting worse. Wow, that is that is amazing. It's, um, I mean, just the the access that uh, these services like yours create for people to help with that, um, I think, is just incredible value. Wow. So, um, can I take us in a little bit different direction? I want to talk about about caregiving for a little bit. Um, 
you know, Allison, you recently wrote in, in the article that we were talking about earlier that caregiving benefits will be the next need to have for employers. Can you just expand a little bit on that? And then we can you know, have Jessica talk a little bit more about her solution, but um, love to hear a little bit more about what was behind that comment in your article. As a venture capitalist, we like to say we're not really that smart. We just <laughs> process a lot of data points and listen to what people are telling us. And this is uh, my, I guess, me making that statement as a result of the feedback I've heard from the market. Um, you know, uh, I think first from a bottoms up perspective of a lot of HR leaders are part of a sandwich generation themselves. And they're experiencing the challenges around caregiving in both directions for aging parents and for young kids. And when your buyer deeply empathizes with uh, the problem, that definitely changes uh, the game. So there's that kind of bottoms up perspective. There has been an explosion in innovation. We've met dozens of companies um, who are building solutions for caregiving. So obviously there's a, uh, and technology has become an enabler for uh, making that uh, less difficult um, and for employees everywhere. And then we've also been hearing it from other big stakeholders. So from the broker, insurance carrier community, um, our fund, we have uh, a lot of our LPs are insurance carriers um, and brokers. Uh, and so they come to us and say, hey, this is our biggest problem right now. Um, and we're looking for innovation in the space. And then we can reach into, you know, our community and sort of the thousands of new companies that we meet every year to try to suggest these are some trends and some solutions that we're seeing. And so we're hearing it from that community too. And so when I put those things together, it just becomes obvious that everybody has started. It was very similar to what we saw with mental health as well and fertility benefits as well, which I think are kind of two of the big innovations in the benefit world over the last 10 years. And so as a result, really believe that when the world conspires for a new category, um, it, it becomes inevitable. I think um, Allison's the one who said to me that probably the same thing for Jessica and for our company, that we, we have something that people want. <laughs> I think the great thing when, is when you have a company that is serving a need that is really clearly there and that people really need. It's not an op nice to have, but it's actually a requirement in order to sustain in day-to-day -day life. And, um, you know, I think certainly caregiving and health are two of those things. They're not really optional. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, let's let's talk a little bit more about the caregiving. You know, I, I'm a mother of two, um, just recently went through caregiving for um, an 85 plus year old uh, grandparent. So it's it's interesting seeing both ends of the spectrum and the, mm -hmm. the elements that go into it. They are different in so many ways and they are the same in so many ways. And both of them, you know, they weigh on you. It takes a lot of time and energy and just um, a lot of your soul, if you will. So I think it would be great for the audience um, Jessica, to talk a little bit about how your resources offered through Care can help women manage this. And, and we've talked about it before. It, it tends to be an unequal burden. And these challenges tend to disproportionately impact women. So let's dig in a little bit deeper to Care and how the solution can help solve that. Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, it's like, you know, uh, what Joanna is doing, what we're doing, it's like one of those things that every... Like caregiving is one of those things that every single one of us will be impacted by at 
in some point of our life, right? And like with employers, uh, 61% of uh, employees are going through some kind of care situation uh, where they're doing 24.4 hours of caregiving on top of their full-time jobs. And every woman's going to go through midlife health, right? Um, and so, you know, especially for women, you know, trends are changing. I will say we have, um, we serve a lot of male caregivers and I love seeing that uh, change happen, but it still disproportionately falls on women. Um, and there have been studies where even the type of care that a woman does versus a male caregiver, it's fascinating. So if you read the research, um, female uh, caregivers tend to do a lot of the physical care, the cooking, the the cleaning, the actual care, bring them to the appointments. Um, and then male caregivers tend to do a lot of the finance, the coordination, the administrative tasks and things like that. And so when you think about that, that conflicts directly with work, right? Um, women, it's harder to outsource really all of that physical aspects of care, right? It's harder to find um, services that do that at the same time that we can work. Um, and so, you know, it's really critical when we think about caregiving, one, to view and understand the holistic nature of it, that it's not just an administrative task, like having, you know, assistant is just not enough because there are whole other aspects of care. And so for Iana Care, we cover the full spectrum of needs. Um, so we do make those calls. We do the financial guidance for you. Um, we will call your insurance. Um, we'll do the paperwork, but we also ensure that, um, we take care of you as a caregiver, one, finding support for that more in-person, high-touch care options. Um, and then we realize that women try to, we try to do it all. Like we often are default parents. Um, and so our view, uh, you know, is that not only do you have to take care of the that female caregiver on the clinical navigation side for their care recipient, but care for her as a whole person. So we mobilize if so for, you know, Laura, you have two kids, we would say, okay, your kids are healthy, but let's find rides for them to give you some respite care. Or in order for you to take care of yourself, we also, um, the whole infrastructure support is also your support system. You can, we in, integrate all of your employee benefits, your health plan benefits. So whether you're navigating for yourself or your care recipient, it's the same system. So for us, it's this one place to go to take care of yourself and your loved one. Um, and we see you as a whole person um, as opposed to just your role as a caregiver for your care recipient. And I think if we take that view, I mean, I was one of those stats. Um, you know, we have 32% of caregivers voluntarily leave their jobs uh, because of caregiving situations. Um, and when my mom was thrust into pancreatic cancer, at three kids, they were 10, seven and five at that time. And I, for the first time ever in my career, quit my job to be her full-time caregiver. Um, and it wasn't just because I didn't have the clinical navigation because I had options. It was just the, all the other aspects that came along with it. And so in our DNA, we built this system specifically to see, especially that woman who tends to carry it all in that mental load um, to really help navigate in a very practical way. And in an emotional way, we help with the mental stress and the emotional support that is um, often overlooked when we think about caregiver support as well. You know, Jessica, I'm listening to you because a lot of the women who come to us haven't been to a doctor in four to 10 years. Mm. And it's because they're doing the caregiving that you're talking about. It's actually, I, you know, we're seeing those same women that they haven't taken care of themselves. And all of a sudden they are getting derailed by some health issues that they weren't expecting. But yeah. part of it is that they were taking care of their kids. They were taking them to the doctor 
um, or taking their mother to the doctor and not taking care of themselves. That's right. Yeah, no, and even the, that's exactly right, Joanna. And there's such an overlap in what we do too when we think about caring for that caregiver because it tends to fall in that age range. Um, and, you know, I think the latest that I read was like over 36% higher costs on the healthcare side for caregivers because they neglect their own health. And so uh, this is a real problem that needs to be addressed. And what's so interesting in my mind about, I also have a, um, a young child and what I've learned is that there is no world where you're not going to do these things. Like you want to do them, <laughs> you want to do it all. And so what is so compelling about what you've built um, is that you, ma you make it easier. So you can mm -hmm. still do it um, because you might not feel right not doing it, um, but with support and with, you know, additional help on all those fronts, you kind of grease the wheels and make it easier and faster to do those things so that you can still stay in the workforce and, and focus. Because um, at the end of the day, you're going to always choose your family, right? I mean, and that's absolutely right, because we realize that um, when people decide to leave the workforce, it is in that critical moment whether they believe it's possible or not. And that is a fascinating insight, right? And when you're thrust into it, it's emotional. There's so much going on. That moment of thinking, is there any support so this is even possible, is a critical point of that decision, whether they decide to leave or not. So it's just, it's, it's, it's that mentality and that possibility and knowing that something's there to help they make it easier, like you're saying, Allison, is, is, um, is the key point. Yeah, and, and to pull on the thread of knowing whether or not it's there to make it easier and, and to make it, you know, is it can it happen or can it not happen, that pivotal moment. Allison, how can companies leverage HR tech to offer valuable benefits to their entire population? So we've talked about traditionally underserved groups and, and women. We have the BIPOC communities. How can, how can companies leverage this tech to offer it a full service of benefits to all of their people? What I find so exciting about HR tech is that it allows employers to make more of what they already have. And, you know, that is certainly what's happening at the micro level, whether it's caregiving or, you know, um, your uh, current benefits or insurance network. Um, but we saw and what we're even hearing from employers is just this fatigue on point solutions because we've had this new conversation around identity as a result of the past few years, which is really exciting. Um, but identities are complex. And as soon as you provide a benefit for women of a certain, a certain population, then all of a sudden you have to consider, you know, people that were not born women or people, you know, that are um, people, women of color or women of color in the southern states or whatever it may be. But like there's a million different um, types of populations to address. And so the promise of technology in my mind is not necessarily, oh, let's create point solutions for each one of these unique populations, because those populations and their definition and scope will always be changing. But instead, how can we use technology to create or to fulfill the promise of what I believe is, you know, personalization, mass personalization, um, which is again, kind of looking at what, what has happened uh, in the consumer market where um, you can watch exactly what you want, how you want to watch it, uh, you know, um, no matter where you are what, or what your life, but uh, the same thing for benefits. And so where we get really excited, our solutions 
um, HR tech solutions that allow employers to understand what is within their existing networks already and then properly route and connect individuals to the solutions they need in order to perform better at work. And so there's a lot of exciting innovation on the infrastructure layer that makes that possible. Um, but it is that mass personalization that I think is the promise of HR technology ultimately. And, you know, I think it's the promise certainly of healthcare technology, quite honestly, right? Like what we're able to do is something you would never be able to do in a doctor's office. So we are able to have one nurse practitioner who can treat a woman on 36 different symptoms. She's not trained on that, but we've created our protocols and we have a backend system for her to reach out to specialists. So if it's something comes in about bone health or brain health, or you wouldn't believe the, the spectrum of, of things that people are coming to us with, then there's an expert on the back end who's able to answer those questions. So we're actually able to use technology to provide actually much higher quality medical care than you would get in a, in a doctor's office. So I want to dig a little bit more into, um, you know, Joanna, Jessica, a, a kind of a question and, and first a comment for you guys, building on the theme that, Jessica, you mentioned about the tremendous overlap between what you both do. And, you know, ostensibly you're solving different problems, you know, caregiving and, um, you know, women's health in middle age, but they're clearly linked. Uh, and maybe that's not fair. Um, it, it's probably a societal issue if you think about it. But ultimately it's, it's inspiring that, you both are helping with these very real challenges that, that people face with your, with your products. And, but I, I do have a question in here outside of the comment. And, you know, it's something that Harry and I talk about a lot in our role uh, in group benefits and, and partnering with great companies like yours. When we deliver these things through the workplace, they're only as valuable as the degree to which people use them. And utilization is so key so with you both on the front lines of this, delivering something valuable, but also trying to get people to use it, I'd love to get your insights on, you know, what are some of the best practices? What have you noticed about utilization? How can you make what you do most valuable to employees? Uh, maybe Joanna, we could start with you. So for us, it really begins with education. So our promise is expert education excuse me, expert health care for women and the best expertise available. So the way that we have found marketing it to the best, you know, getting it is to do webinars for, for the population. We did one recently for an employer and they had 2,500 women show up. Um, it was the most they'd ever had show up for a webinar. And uh, we have, and we bring our experts, we bring the physicians and they answer questions and then people are interested. So we really start with the education and start with the expertise. And we found that's a very, that's for us is a very effective strategy of getting the word out. Yeah, uh, I love that, Joanna. I think there's a lot of shared tactics we probably use because um, there's still a stigma attached to what we both do, right? Especially in the workplace, people aren't openly saying, you know, who they're caring for and how difficult that is or, you know, what they're going through on the health side. Um, and so what we've discovered is that you have to first start with uh, establishing a psychological safety. I know I love how that phrase is coming out more and more, um, but it's setting this environment where people feel like they can even show up to the webinars or have these chats or conversations without being judged. Um, and a key way that we've done it is, uh, you know, through vulnerable leadership, like having the leaders 
join our webinars and share their caregiving story. And over and over again, that has like opened up the floodgates of just having people say, wow, if my VP can share that, I'm welcome to share that as well. And it's something that I I saw on the maternity side, you know, um, early in, you know, my own career, when I saw a leader share about um, her early kind of pregnancy and going through that, I felt like I was empowered to do the same. And so, um, you know, we, we sum it up in saying, you know, don't create necessarily buzz, but create community. And so a lot of our tactics are around, even when we have a webinar, it's we make sure that everyone on the webinar interacts with each other. And then they share it with other people. They come back repeatedly and you start building this community within, um, because then that sets the ground for then all the other tactics of emails and reminders, you know, those are all channels of tactics. But if you don't have that foundation of engagement, um, those emails will not be opened. (laughs) Yeah, you both just mentioned something critically important, um, education, but also breaking the stigma. We talk a lot in our own culture about breaking the stigma around things like mental health and leadership vulnerability and sharing stories, and it it is very impactful. And I want to tie this back to something that's come up in several of our our podcast recordings, and that is the difference in in the generations that are in the workforce today. And so, um, you know, hyper mass personalization has come up. Uh, We talked about the uh, difference between male and female caregiving. We're we're starting to kind of go around the edges of talking about the different ways in which people handle this. I'm, I'm curious, in particular, Jessica, when you think about how people are using your services, are you seeing a significant difference in the way that the generations that are uh, providing caregiving are utilizing uh, the services that you provide? Yeah, um, there are just overarching generational differences. And it's fascinating because one employer can have over three generations, right? And working together and, um, you know, what type of caregiving they're going through can be different. And so this is kind of what we talked about, the mass personalization, Um, you know, but, uh, you know, a key thing and a differentiator for our platform is we empower employees with choice. Um, Because some may want to just hop on a phone call and just talk to a navigator. Others will not want to talk to a navigator at all, and they still want value. And so there are a lot of solutions that I saw out in the market where you have to talk to a navigator and there's no self-serve aspect at all. And I equate that to like, remember when we used to call 411 (laughs) to say what the local pizzeria was? We all joke and laugh at that because we would never do that now that we have Yelp, right? So I think we have to get away from the fact that healthcare or care always has to be human-based because that's not always the most efficient or the way we want to interact. But there are differences in that um, for some personality, age, type of care situation, what stage you are in that care journey. Um, And so having the ability to give people choice across all of those different factors um, makes it more inclusive. And I think that actually ties back to this question of best practices around, you know, how to drive utilization is what I've seen is, you know, when it comes to benefits, there's a, your customer and your user is different and that can be really confusing. And so what we see, you know, both of you have done this and a lot of our more successful companies in the benefit space have done this as well, which is you sell contracts to employers, but you market your problem to consumers. And, you know, people might want to engage in those benefits in different ways, but they all have the same problem. And when they know that they should be turning to their employer for a solution, 
then that's where the magic happens. And, you know, I think with a lot of celebrities talking about the challenges of caregiving and women's health and, um, you know, a lot of big names uh, starting to bring up these concepts in the broader media, it might seem strange that if an employer is your customer, you still need to market to the end um, employee, but ultimately creating that awareness around the problem is what can what can drive those two pieces together, which ultimately results in um, great utilization of the solutions that people really need. Well, this has been a fantastic dialogue. Uh, I Before we close, I want to ask Carrie or Laura, my co-host, do you have any final questions uh, or comments for uh, for our audience or our guest today? No, um, no additional questions, but I will make a closing comment. You know, Todd, you used the word earlier, inspiring. Um, it, it This has been a very inspiring conversation. And yeah, Jessica and Joanna, thank you for doing what you do, right? Bringing these critical consumer needs to the marketplace and, and solving them. And Allison, to your company for enabling that. So just a, a fantastic conversation from my perspective. Yeah, and, and I'd be remiss. I know that we're at, we're at top of time here, but each of you has such a unique story that I'm going to have to ask you my favorite question. And Joanna, let's start with you, then Jessica, then Allison. But I, I need to know, what is your why? You wake up every morning and you do the work you do, and it's so important. But why is that? Oh, my goodness. For me, it's the feedback from the patients. Um, I've been waking up every day to getting notices on LinkedIn either from men saying that I had helped their wives and thanking me, which are, are some of the most fun. Um, but I got one the other day saying that she thinks that Mitty saved her life. I mean, it's, it's really powerful when you can get the right woman, the right medical care. It, it is transformational and it's very rewarding. Yeah. I mean, same for me. I mean, it's the impact that we have then individuals' lives, their families' lives, and then um, you know every partner that we work with, and then I think on the macro level, so much is being shifted into the home. You know, more and more, all the hospital care is being shifted in the home, and and yet there's no infrastructure. So I, I feel this responsibility um, because I feel like we can do it, and we're uniquely positioned uh, to build that infrastructure that the industry hasn't been able to do yet uh, because of the technology and the human side of it and AI and all the other things that are coming about. I feel like we're uniquely positioned uh, to do what's a tsunami that's gonna hit us um, even in a bigger way in the next five to 10 years. And for me, it's really around this idea that there has to be a better way. The way that we work sucks. <laughs> We're not making any more money than we did several generations ago. People are far unhealthier. Um, and when work sucks, everything sucks. And technology has brought us so much in our uh, uh, all aspects of our lives. And it still has not yet truly, I think, um, made our work lives better. And that's just what gets me up every day is like, it just has to be better. We can do better. Well, I can't think of a better way to close. Laura, thank you for the great final question. Harry, thank you as always. And Joanna, Jessica, it was such a pleasure learning about your companies and the great work you do. Allison, your holistic insights on HR technology were extremely valuable. So uh, I want to thank our audience. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed having the conversation. Please keep an eye on your podcast feed. We will be back with more episodes of Working Forward soon. Until then, we're signing off on this episode. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Working Forward 
Future of Work podcast series. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Symmetra Life Insurance Company or its affiliates. The host is not affiliated with Symmetra Life Insurance Company and or any of its affiliates and is solely responsible for the content.